0: SunCast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. SunCast is also brought to you by Trina Solar.
1: Most companies fail because they don't have a process. And what we're trying to do at Above Grid is build that foundation, build that process, work with channel partners so we're able to, I say, rinse and repeat where we have a foundation and process and we can do it and we can do it well.
0: Hey there, Solar Warriors, I'm Nico Johnson. And this is Suncast. Each week I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, Solar Warrior, and welcome back to another episode of Suncast. I met today's entrepreneur through a serendipitous introduction from another titan of industry and guest on Suncast, Mr. Jim Spano, during the podcast lounge in Salt Lake City last year. And at that time, I never could have imagined how much I'd go on to learn from this guest. But I am super grateful for Jim's introduction. Mr. Joe Tusson has been developing projects and leading teams since his 20s and he's seen the boom years come and go in the telecom industry. We explored the path that led him to ultimately founding his own company in the telecom space and his eventual transition to the solar energy industry. Joe impressed upon me not only the fundamental and transferable skills of development, but he also shared with me the value of being a giver, a networking and customer-focused zealot. Joe is one of the best I've met at follow-up and he credits much of his success to an insatiable desire to meet people and connect the dots. Join me now as we explore Joe's transition from telecom to solar, his core skills as a project developer, the importance of customer service, and the power of your network. Remember, you can always find the resources and learn more about today's guests and recommendations, as well as more than 230 other founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. And hey, while you're there, be sure you're subscribed to the Suncast tribe so that you receive weekly insights into the conversations, events, tools, and tips that we are curating to help you in your personal and professional pursuits. And in fact, if you were already subscribed, then you'd be aware that tomorrow we're hosting an AMA. That's an Ask Me Anything. With past guest Jeff Ressler of Clean Power Research. What are you waiting for? All right, then. Now you know. Well, let's tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, today we are going to dive down
2: the rabbit hole of project development. But more than project development, this is really how to cultivate a career that elevates your skill set and helps you understand where you play a role in the market. All of us play different roles. Maybe you're selling solar panels. Maybe you are uh, advancing uh, grid edge with storage services. Or maybe you, like my friend Joe, are a dirt merchant helping really literally expand the footprint of our industry. Today, we've got the Vice President of Project Development from Accent Core, Mr. Joe Tusson. Joe recently formed another entity called Above Grid with some of his closest to uh, industry colleagues and partners. And Joe brings 20 plus years of experience developing more than 5,000 wireless telecommunications projects throughout the U.S. Today, we're going to dig into how he's leveraging that experience and skill into expanding the realm of PV and storage. But first, let's welcome Joe to Suncast.
1: Nico, thank you very much. Very honored to be part of this program today and I'm um, here to answer your questions and impart part, everything i know about the business and development thank you so
2: much for having me you bet man well if uh i don't know that we'll have the time to impart everything that you know but i'm sure there'll be opportunities for us to dig into and get some of those pearls of wisdom a quick hat tip to our friend uh, mutual friend and uh and former suncast guest as well mr jim spano who made the introduction to the two of us and i'm grateful for jim uh, he's always been an advocate of the show well, Joe, I teased it a bit there in the in the intro that you've got a pretty deep experience in the telecom business. Many of us who've been in the industry for a decade or more can see the ready uh, parallels between these two industries. But before I jump in and start learning about your telecom experience, I have to ask: How did you decide to get into telecom to begin with? And as, as I understand, got out of college late '90s. And you, like many of us, trying to figure out where you want to go. What was the catalyst for you to even get into you know, the, the development process for telecom?
1: Well, it was uh, the mid-90s, and I was out of college, went to State University, and didn't really know what I wanted to do in, in life. I had a good liberal arts degree, and I had a former fraternity brother go work for a consultant development company uh, in the Southeast. And he hired, they were looking for people. It was the explosion of cellular at the time with Sprint and T-Mobile and a lot of these uh, uh, companies other than the Bell Atlantics of the world coming into the marketplace. And they were looking for bodies basically to go out and find sites for cell towers and tenant locations. And um, they, you know, four or five, six of my friends actually, we all got hired guys that I actually roomed with in college. And uh, I got in my beat up car, drove out to Milwaukee, Wisconsin and started on one of Sprint's first projects out there. Uh, Didn't even know what I was doing and got what we called search rings and go out and find this land to put up a tower. And uh, that's how I started my career. I knew nothing about the business. It was uh, very lucrative. If you owned a business back then, we were on commission basis and we were just going out finding land and and high structures. And um, I was, I think in one year, ended up working in seven or eight different markets, Des Moines, Boston, Tulsa, Oklahoma City, just kind of being dropped in as a paratrooper going in and finding, uh, you know, scores of projects, then started to learning the zoning and the permitting and construction management part. But uh, it was really by accident and a connection.
2: What a fortuitous accident. And uh, I think you're more the, the norm than not there. Many of us sort of fall into that first experience I think we'll see over the course of our conversation how you've parlayed that experience into a career in development and become quite a prolific developer. I mentioned earlier that you have developed over 5,000 wireless projects. And you've parlayed that into solar. You've I know from our discussions that you've hired and mentored more than you know more than 500 or more people in your career. But I'm actually really interested in understanding. The discovery process that you went through of deciding where in the market you're going to deploy your talent or where you, how did you discover that you had a particular knack for um, the project development side of the business? And can you walk me through those those first years, maybe five, 10 years of uh, feeling out that market and finding your way to the place where you could add the most value?
1: Sure. I realized I always, you know, when I was in college, I I was always looked at myself as a leader, president of my fraternity. I was involved in a lot of different organizations. I always loved leading people and working with people and helping people. And when I got into this business, uh, I was so thirsty for knowledge and I had a a lot of good people that I worked with. And as the first year or so, I realized that I really want to get into a a management uh, position. I like the business because I love connecting with people. I love closing deals, going out and working with a farmer and uh, sitting in his his kitchen and, and telling him we're going to give him some rent to put up a tower and articulating the vision of that or working with a corporation that owns a rooftop. So I really enjoyed that. And I realized, you know, through doing that as, and this is back in the day, it was like the wild west. I mean, money was out there. There wasn't a lot of structure. And it was just build, build, build. My first year or two, I got into the. I started helping new training people. I was always asked to train new people coming into the company, and I was very. I thought I was very good at that, and I enjoyed. And I knew that to really further my career was to be in some sort of management role. After my first year, I took a, a a a job with a startup company out of Houston, and I met some really good people down there. But the project was the company was a one project wonder. And now it would take us up into uh, early 98. And uh, there's a company, SBA Communications, that they're... Right now, they're actually one of the the largest REITs in the world. They're about a $30 billion public company. Unbelievable company with some great people. They were uh, first... Did their first build a suit with Bell South on the Carolinas. They were looking for a team leader on the project. I applied. I got hired. And that was really my first management position, where I was managing other developers other project managers, and we were working in the Carolinas to do uh, tower build suits for Bell South, and then through my career at SBA HS, uh, you know, I was promoted to a project director, then a territory manager in the early 2000s, and um, then director of tower development for the Northeast, and then I decided to start my own company. So it was really the trajectory of managing teams and starting new markets. It's very exciting. Uh, this really goes to my entrepreneurial nature, even though I work for a corporation. It's very exciting to go into a market with a blank slate and really building a team of people and motivating the team of people to a vision to become successful and developing. I love development. I love taking something and creating a, a end product, whether it's a tower, whether it's a solar farm. It just It's in my blood and I really enjoy it.
2: You know, I'm I'm really curious to understand if you, maybe you've thought about, or maybe this could be the first time that you r- really reflect back on it, but have a sense of why you were being asked you among uh, the rest of the folks to be ch- to train others and what you feel that you understood that perhaps others didn't about the process?
1: Yeah, I um, I, I tend to be very modest. I, I think it's just my work ethic, Nico. I just was in the office early. I always had a a good, you know, my father and my parents worked very hard. So that really instilled the work ethic for me. So I was always looking to do more. And uh, I always uh, say when I mentor people and even new people in business or my kids is when you work for, whether you work for yourself or especially if you work for a company, always take the initiative to do more. People will notice that coming in early, coming in on the weekends, taking on a project that may not be in your scope. By doing stuff like that, you're going to stand out from the rest. And I just love doing it. And I just was—it wasn't something that uh, really occurred organically, or there was a set mechanism to do that. And it was just like go with Joe. And I seemed to kind of grasp it. Me—I didn't know the—I definitely did not know the most in the market. But I really took uh, initiative and enjoyed working with new people in the business. And I'm a very process-oriented, organized type A person. And I firmly believe in creating structure and a foundation, uh, whatever whatever you're doing in business. And that lends itself nicely to when you're uh, training somebody. And I think I'll go into that a little bit further when we talk about the solar business and some of the, uh, the ins and outs of uh, creating success. But I think it was just really being there and maybe volunteering for it at a time. And then I was just that guy.
2: You had to raise your hand, right? When did you, when did you know that, and maybe this was really early in life, but was there a moment where you just knew that you were an entrepreneur?
1: You know, that's a really good question because I, I never really thought myself of of an entrepreneur. And I uh, I was a very, my risk tolerance, I, I look at it, I'm, I always like to play with house money. I'm not the guy at the $1,000 blackjack table. But it was really when I was doing this it, with my former company, which I really love. And to this day, I, I can't say enough good things about SBA and the leadership there. And if you look at their track record of taking a stock from 19 cents to over $250 in in a decade, it's pretty incredible. But uh, it was around the mid-2000s. I was just getting stale in in the business. And it's really my partner, um, who I've known since high school, who I got into the telecom business. And he's more of a, a risk taker. We're like a yin and a yang. And over six months, he's like, you know, we really can go out and do this ourselves. And do consulting and do the real estate and permitting and project management for some of the clients that we know and we have relationships with. And this is at a time where it's very it was very competitive and I was very doubtful. But then I started to see the companies doing it. And when you're going into business, you really there's a couple of ways you do it. You either take a new idea that's not been invented yet, or maybe that's not out on the market. And if you can do that, whether it's a technology or a new product, you're going to kill it. Or you take something that is being done already, and you could just do it better. Uh, I know we weren't going to do it cheaper, but I knew that we can go in there and offer better service to our customers. And we started with a, an investment back in five of less than a thousand dollars, and in a couple of years, we were doing the mil- millions a year, and we were in ink number three forty-two on the Ink List three or four, five years after we were in business. So we just did it, uh, bootstrapped it, and we just did it better than our competitors and we ended up uh, being very successful doing it. So I don't know when the exact, to answer your question, I don't know when the exact time was. I just knew I had to do something different. And I also knew that if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. And I would have a regret. And I don't look back. I'm happy I did it. And now I consider myself, if you look at my track record on a number of companies and, and some successes, some failures, uh, I really have that as, in my blood.
2: Uh, We'll get into uh, more of the development mindset in a bit, but as this is a uh, a podcast particularly focused on clean energy, tell me about your first foray or exposure to solar power or clean energy as it were and how you knew that this is where you wanted to pivot and focus your career.
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and this is actually a little bit more exact, and some of it is accidental and fortuitous. But uh, when I was in my for- own, my former company for 11 or 12 years, and again, we've had a lot of successes, then we got into construction, and that's a very uh, challenging business. And, uh, you know, just had some people that I trusted and uh, did not do the right things. And also, we've made, it, you know, as uh, some, some, issues we've had and we didn't make the right decisions i was the captain of the ship and certainly take responsibility for that but uh one thing i've learned is so you know you got to really embrace your failures and you learn from them Uh, most successful people have had incredible failures even some of the individuals you mentioned already on this podcast so to really go into solar it was about 2016 and uh we were just having a difficult year and uh, I had like, this consultant that I still uh, brought on that I still talked to today. And he said, you know, you really need to look at the energy sector. And I started to feel out and put some feelers out because I'm like, we could do development. We can do construction. And uh, there's, there's so many parallels. Developing a site for a, a tower, let's say, or doing a 10 megawatt solar project, it's almost identical. The only difference is is, the, is you don't have to deal with the interconnection on the telecom side. Um, other than that, it's almost apples to apples. So I started really feeling out and meeting some people in the business. And uh, one particular client, um, they said, wow, we really like your experience. I think you could be an affiliate for us and originate projects. And this was in 16. And and we just had some conversations, never really went anywhere. And I started doing a lot of reading on renewables, especially solar. And I said, wow, this reminds me of telecom in the mid-90s. This is a boom right now. And the people were a lot nicer. A lot more professional, and I really liked it. And I'm, I, I became very passionate, like I have. I, I believe in cellular technology. I mean, we all have cell phones, and I really believe in in the mission and the vision of solar. I believe that's where the country's heading to. It's a great product, and um, I started to feel the juices flow again. And this is something I really want to get into. And I sort of put it on the back burner and forward into seventeen. When my company, we had to shut it down. Unfortunately, it was a very painful experience. Uh, still having some fallout now. Uh, there were some good people that got uh, that got affected, including you know myself. Um, no one really understands the pain you go through when you're an entrepreneur. Everyone sees you know the nice shiny object and oh look at him, he owns the company. But they don't see the sleepless nights and injecting your own capital and your payroll. Until you do it. So I ended up making a call to this client that I uh, got to know, and I said, Hey, uh, I'm all yours now if you want us. You know, we have uh, our other companies no longer. I want to focus solely on solar. They said, Come on in. And this is like the summer of 17. And we ended through a CENCOR and uh, ended up uh, with, for that one client, I think in the last two and a half years, not knowing anything about solar we have a, we originated about 350 megawatts of projects i would say at least half of them will actually be built
2: well actually joe that's one of the things that i believe that uh you know our first engagement when we met at spi and jim suggested that we get to know one another jim was like man you're not going to believe the the skill set this guy brings the solar from telecom would you unpack that for me you're looking through the lens of 5000 plus tower sites which uh as i understand uh sort of your philosophy uh it aligns very well with one of my previous bosses in development who says look solar is a real estate play without the occupancy risk so it with i love that
1: by the way yep
2: yeah it's. A, i mean it's a, it's one of the best ways i've heard to explain especially utility scale solar but but i'm gonna i'm gonna tee that up for you because you have a particular philosophy about what these deals really actually represent from a skill set and sort of placement in the market Give me an idea of the similarities that you saw, what you'd done in the, over the preceding 15, 20 years in telecom and where the solar industry is right now.
1: You know, just to clarify too, when I say 5,000 projects, I mean, indirectly, in the, when I managed a company, I mean, we had 150 site projects. It's not like I actually physically touched Five thousand projects, but you're so modest. It does. It's okay. In I've been it and, and, you were in managed know <laughs> different stages. So I would say it, it is. This is a still very young new industry. It's so funny. Like when I started in telecom, I was 24, I think 25, and we were. It was a very young industry. Every all the developers were the same age. Now in solar, a lot of my clients are 27, 28, 29. You know, my the people that I report into. I, I joke around with them all the time. I'm like the old man in the room now. Uh, But the real parallels of, you know, in the telecom industry, and again, you know, it went through a lot of gyration, a lot of ups and downs in in the years. And um, you're only, you know, the different, the big difference is you're working for four or five carriers in the solar industry space. There's, there's scores, hundreds of different types of opportunities, but it really comes down to, you know, looking for real estate at the end of the day. And, um, that is the, the most important thing, knowing how to have the instinct and in knowing how to evaluate property expeditiously is really at the forefront of any development, whether you're looking for, you know, locations for waffle houses, whether you're looking for locations for cell towers or Walmarts or battery storage or big solar utility scale solar, it really comes down to knowing how to, where to look is number one analyzing the information that's in the market and every market has its different parameters for, you know, if you're looking at Waffle House, probably demographics is a big thing where solar, it doesn't really matter where solar you're more driven on the substation and it's in the state policies and the circuits. Um, So it's really the, the looking in for good real estate because without real estate, you have nothing. Uh, I say, I say this at the conference, conference I spoke to uh, at SPI is you could have the best state incentives, you could have the best policies. I mean, that's the air and the water analogous to the the human body, right? You need that stuff to operate in. But really, the blood of it is the real estate because you could have that. But if you can't find a piece of real estate and understand it, you're not going to be able to develop it. And being able to do that quickly and accurately is going to save a lot of money. So I would say that that's the biggest parallel is really understanding real estate and understanding zoning, because that's really the drivers of getting great projects. Everything else sort of falls into place. I mean, you got to have the capital. Like I said, you have to have the, the the market to be able to operate in. In telecom, it was really, you know, working with the engineers and, and looking for space that areas that, you know, obviously you can put up a tower and it's really engineer driven. And it's it's very similar in solar. From a macro standpoint, the similarities between telecom in the mid to late 90s and solar now and some of the trends that I see that are occurring now in solar that were true for telecom. And I would say the number one is you started to see a huge influx of capital. It got to a point where you started to see more money out there than there were projects. And I would say that is the number one thing that I'm seeing right now in the solar industry is that you're starting to see capital exceed the amount of inventory that's out there. And that's a really good space to be in if you're a developer. I mean, it certainly adds a layer of competition, but I saw that in telecom and, and that's going to bring in more players, more developers into the game. Um, that's uh, the number one. The second thing is it started, you started to see a shift in the regulatory climate. I mean, the Telecom Act of 96 was a big projector for the telecom space. And you started to see the shift. That was the
2: deregulation of telecom. Yeah, that right? was the
1: big deregulation. And you started to see communities and states really jump on the bandwagon into promoting. I mean, it's it's still hard to this day to develop a tower. I, I mean, I'm not going to kid you, but the regulatory climate has become more advantageous. And I'm seeing starting to see that in solar now, too. I mean... Outside of the incentives, you know, everyone's talking about the ITC. Obviously, that's that's out there. But you're starting to see states adopt community solar programs. Uh, New York, uh, for instance. I mean, there's big bigger runways for programs. So it's really the, the shift in the regulatory climate. You're seeing states become that were usually very regulated. You know, going toward deregulation, which is allowing more opportunity for development. So those are those are really the two things that I think are very very similar from the telecom industry in the in the late 90s, wireless telecom to now the solar PV battery storage market, will you, is really the injective capital and a shift in the regulatory framework. And that really lends itself to being a great time to develop. And then the third thing, you know, I would say is that, you know, it's still a, a new business. I mean, I mean, if you look across the board, it's not like we're at nowhere near a saturation rate, where if you looked at telecom 25 years ago, You'd only add about 40 to 50% of the people who had cell phones. So you had a nice runway there before you started to feel saturation. And solar, I would say that it's even more wide open, where you're only, what, 2 or 2% now of, uh, of all uh, power generation is solar. So those three things, capital, the regulatory environment, and, and actually having a, a, a huge runway before you get to anywhere near saturation would be the three parallels to what I saw telecom 20 years ago
2: yeah it's really interesting um an aside might also look like what we saw in the internet boom right so uh late 90s first boom and bust in 2001 there were lots of companies to name a few you know lycos uh one of the early search engines folks sort of assumed oh Internet search has been figured out, and this was year, you know, five years before Google was even formed. Uh, Google now the most valuable company in the world, along with Apple.
1: I would agree, but the only difference I would say, when you look into the telecom space or solar, is at the end of the day, you're standing by an asset. You actually have to have an asset. Where a lot of the internet companies that went away were just paper companies, right? Hey, we have an idea. Let's let's. Uh, you know, throw some spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks when it comes to solar. Not to say that you didn't have some bad tower sites built and some some uh, solar uh, projects that maybe didn't pencil out, but uh, at least you have something, a hard asset there to fall back on.
2: We still haven't even seen the company be born yet. That is the alphabet or Google of energy, right? Like we still are in such an infancy in the industry where, you know, I hear people say, oh, I'm getting out of the solar coaster and going to storage. And that's not a bad idea. The sort of underlying presumption is like the game's been played. I'm going to move on to something else. And the reality is that 2% market penetration, the game's been played for people who don't understand the rules. But if you understand the rules of project development, which is what we're talking about today, the game's just starting. You know, in that point number two, the shift in regulatory climate, which we saw, you know, we've seen in New York and Texas, which would suggest that we still have 80 plus percent of the market still in this shift towards solar and the idea promoting coverage, as it were, for energy the way they did for telecom is still nascent. What case studies or companies do you feel like are worth thinking about or studying as, uh, as uh, analogs for, for those who want to kind of look back at history to, try, to think about the future? Are there companies that you would say you've learned from that I, I as, a, as a developer, might think about studying to see the, to see the similarities and extrapolate for myself?
1: Yeah. I always like to look at failures because so I think you learn a lot more from failures, believe it or not, than you learn from successes. Not 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 always, but when you look at the companies in even telecom, I don't want to say the carriers, but you look at the development companies that were, are no longer in business. And if I said the names out there, people would have to probably go on the second page of Google search to find them. But there are companies out there that really really spent money too quickly and weren't judicious on spending capital, Uh, but we even see this in the solar space, um, you know, the Sun Edisons of the world. And and I don't know their whole story there, but you really have companies, you know, when you do development, it is a, uh, it's very interesting because you have to spend money, you have to develop, whether it's your own money, whether it's investors' money, if you don't have money out working for you, you're going to, you're just never going to succeed. But it's how you spend that money, and and how do you develop and do it in the best way? Because there's always a risk there. I mean, we've all been in the position where you spend a hundred grand on a project, only to learn, you know, eight months down the road that it's a uh, you know eight million dollar interconnect, and you have to abandon it. And I see a lot of companies going out there and, and just spending money willy nilly on not really you know offering way above market rents to landowners, um, not taking consideration tax implications are just developing bad projects and you're going to, you're going to go through your money very quickly. And that happened in uh, the late nineties, early two thousands, especially pre nine 11, where you saw a lot of these co- tower companies, I'll them go out and, and they just build, build. It was always, it was a thing. I remember going to meetings, build it and they will come. Well, that's a, uh, you could also, you know, shoot from the hip strategies, uh, are called that because you don't always hit your target and you're going to be out of business, right? Sometimes you, you make it, but, um, it's really the, the case studies of the companies that went out there and in any industry. So I know you're looking for specific names. I don't know if I have any off the tip of my tongue. You know, I, I know with the nuns in the solar business that aren't around anymore, I think there's good case studies, you know, successful companies in the telecom space, you know, American Tower, uh, the largest REIT in the world by far, They're like a $70 billion company. And when I started in the business, they owned about 100 towers. Uh, SBA, the company I used to work for, unbelievable case study. You want to study that company and what they've been through and uh, where they are today. It's amazing. And I, again, I can't applaud the leadership enough. You know, look at those types of companies. And then you look at the, you know, the carriers that are out there verizon wireless eighteen t I mean they're part of big conglomerates, so it's hard to really focus in and see what they've done right or what they've done wrong. so I always like to focus on the companies that actually do a lot of the developing and and the backbone of um of the uh the end user so to speak
2: it's something I learned early on by happenstance my uh my wife's uncle is uh as he refers self referentially a dirt merchant <laughs> he spent his entire Career certainly the last half of it, essentially locating, buying, and brokering properties for the group that owns um, Outback Steakhouse and Carrabba's and and a few other chains in the southeast, and uh, and did quite well for himself. Uh, Like that, there are you know there's a whole uh, layer of service providers. uh, I would say arguably like yourself that are the dirt merchants of the solar industry. Help me differentiate. The various layers of development and how companies form to service each piece versus kind of the the full stack solar developer that maybe has a lot of capital and has been around for a long time. Um, and and what I really want to understand there is back to the fundamentals that you mentioned about real estate so help me get into that understanding of the underlying piece of the value of the asset, which is the real estate.
1: Yeah, the, that's a uh, interesting question because you know everyone looks at the end product, right? But there's a lot of layers, as you said, that uh, make that end product happen. You know, the person that gets the electricity at the end of the day, there's a million steps in between, you know, going from a purely development standpoint, and you know, this is really what Above Grid does, and uh, we'll be doing, is really looking at the marketplace, number one, you know, where do you want to go hunt? for good projects. You know, there's states that we all know that are really hot right now, uh, historically, Massachusetts, New York, uh, really sharpening your spear and going there. So that's number one. Number two, it really starts with identifying the areas. I mean, we're all in business to make profits. So where can you make the most profit and have the best projects without uh, killing yourself, so to speak, and it's really identifying whether it's a, a CNI project. So now you're going to be looking at uh, really good buildings, um, rooftops with good owner users, and uh, if you're doing the ground mount uh, play in a community solar state, it's vetting the property.
2: I'm trying to get some insight from you on that early stage piece where you said the most of the risk is, which is around the real estate. Help me understand that development process, development cycle, maybe even the timelines, and, and eventually we'll get into some of the hurdles, but where are the areas uh, that, are va- that values created, and maybe even what are the demarcations in skills where someone should hand it off, and sometimes you don't see them hand it off, they try to do it themselves and, and end up failing because they didn't hand it off, etc.?
1: Yeah. To answer one of the parts of the question is, you know, what type of skill set that you need to be a good developer? And, um, you know, through my experience in managing hundreds of people and doing this for a long time, I don't know if there's an exact, um, you know, let me see your resume. where did you go to school? Okay. You have the skill set. Anyone could be a good developer. First and foremost is you have to be a very approachable person. You have to be able to work with people and 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 not be afraid to initiate cold calls and deals. So you have to be a, a people person for lack of a better word. And you have to have the ability to connect with another human being. Cause you're really taking a a concept where, you know, a farmer doesn't understand what you're doing. He's held, held this land for 50 years and now you're gonna take all of it to put up solar panels. So you have that ability to instill confidence and trust in another human being. And and that's a, uh, a skill set that if you don't have that, I, I just, you, you look at another part of the business. And the second thing is is you have to be very motivated and have a, a real good attention to detail. I've seen a lot of people that could close deals and, and be great with people, but then they miss a lot of the details and you end up killing the project because they they didn't look at the deed or they didn't realize they were wetlands. So you have to have a combination of of attention to detail, but also have a very good uh concept of dealing with people. And the third thing is is you have to be able to work and multitask and work many projects at once because time is always at the essence. I mean, anyone could do one project, but to do thirty or forty projects at one time, where you're juggling a multitude of issues and fires every day, so it's that people approach attention to detail and the ability to have high executive functioning skills. And if you have those skill set, a lot, some of it could be taught, a lot of it could be taught, um, but nothing, nothing really replaces the hard work that you have to put in to be
2: successful. In that early stage, then um, you talked about engaging with a farmer. Can you give me some examples of the hurdles that maybe from your experience with telecom have proven true in solar as well around acquiring the land and identifying the right piece of property that you feel like most a lot of people get wrong?
1: Before everyone, I, I always call it the, I'll start with an analogy. It's like getting in the car and just driving out there, right? most of the due diligence is done right now at your computer, knowing the market and building the foundation. And really what I saw on telecom a lot is, you know, we were in the marketplace and we, you know, people would just get these areas The your engineers would say, okay, find me a tower site. And this, they put a circle on a map and, and people would just go run out there and not even do a lot of their homework. The, the most critical portion of a project is what you do in front. And no one ever wants to pay for that, right? You got a project that's de-risked at NTP. People are writing checks for 50 grand to fix mistakes that would have cost you $500, you know, eight months ago. But no one wants to spend money at the early stages. My philosophy is, is spend the money not it's not a lot of money but spend a little money up front and more time up front to vet the property so the biggest hurdle is once you know the program the state the area you want to go into and you've identified uh, a circuit let's say and then you start looking at the property from a zoning zoning is first and foremost i mean if if it's not allowed you shouldn't be there unless there's some exception you can uh, you could uh you can make, and it, you have a path to go there. But it's really understanding the, the zoning climate is number one, and then once you know that, then and there's a real, a real detailed process that we go through of, of looking at a piece of property, and it starts off on the macro level to the zoning, and then you're looking at individual farms, or I mean, I'm saying farms, it could be industrial area, whatever, whatever whatever type of project you're doing, and then you're looking at the the wetlands, the floodplains, the the topography. The, the benefit of t- today is there's so many online resources and mapping programs that you could do this in an hour where back in the day when I started, I mean, you were pulling out the old topo maps and driving and going to town halls. I mean, 99% of this now can be done from your desktop. So it's really identifying those type of characteristics. And you, it seems so academic, but you would be surprised, Nico, on the number of people that miss it. And then they're three months into a project and the 20 grand in and, and the project dies and it's something they probably could have caught two months earlier. And I've made every mistake in the book, believe me. So you just kind of learn from mistakes.
2: Yeah. I remember in our previous call, you said that you estimated like, you used the very specific number, 67% of the project value is done before you get the site control. Absolutely. The, the upfront and, and, and I will go to this. And, and one of the things,
1: you know, that you asked before about the parallels of telecom and one of the experiences. And and I haven't seen this. I don't want to talk poorly about anybody in the industry, but what I've seen so far in the two or three years I've been in this is that companies just, they don't, I haven't seen a company or companies really be able to scale nationally. And with doing project development telecom, We were able. You, I mean, you literally would sit down with a Verizon of the world, let's say, and you would get 150 projects. They would say they put it on the map. We need 150 projects, and you have one year to do it. See you later. Go do it. We're going to give you some money. We're going to give you some guidance, and you had to have that. And you, you might have been doing it over five states, so you have zero capital, not a lot of people, and you were able to do it in in an incredibly pressure cooker timeframe. I mean, solar there's pressure, but working in the telecom business when you have on air goals. I would say it's double the amount of pressure plus you have clients breathing over your neck every day. So it really taught us the how to really take a rinse and repeat type of process and 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 build it. I mean, there's a, uh, a guy Marcus Leonis, I think it's called the Prof, he mentions the four, you know, P's: product, people, process, plan. Most companies fail by lack of planning and lack of process. I mean, you have to have Obviously, the right product and the right people. You're not even going to get off the bench if you don't have that. But most companies fail because they don't have a process. And what we're trying to do at Above Grid is build that foundation, build that process, work with channel partners. So we're able to, I say, rinse and repeat where we have a foundation and process and we can do it and we can do it well and we can do it uh, scripted, so to speak. I mean, there's always those different variables, but at least you have that foundation. It's like building a house, right? You mentioned the, you know, if a house is built, On a poor foundation, you're going to have errors and and, and headaches throughout, you know, when you're putting the roof on. So it's building that foundation and taking the time, right? Everyone, oh, if you don't, you know, you got to get stuff in the queue. We got that. But if you're not building that right product up front and spending the time and a little bit of money, you're going to be wasting an incredible amount of money. It's painful to lose in zoning. I've been there. And sometimes it's going to happen. You're going to lose the site in zoning, right? But to lose it because you just made a critical error that you could have avoided, It's ugly. You don't want to, that's a big write-off. Do you
2: have any advice for folks who are trying to operate in that area of site control, which is the first de-risking of a project?
1: My biggest advice is to, I was, and I, I, this is really the half of my presentation that I did over at SBI is that it's building the connection with the stakeholders. Building the connection with the town, but most important, the property owner. And that, that not, not just the farmer. I mean, you could be dealing with a multi-billion dollar corporation on an industrial warehouse space, but it's all relationship-driven. Building that level of trust, credibility, and integrity. Doing what you say you're going to do. Customer service. I mean, we live in this digital era right now, and it's amazing. I, I've seen projects where, you know, you deal with a landowner, and they might have signed a letter of intent a year ago, and it's expired. And I've had landers tell me, you know what? You're the first person that's come to my property. You know, these people are out of state. I never met the guy that, or the girl that did this deal with me. I'm like, you know, this is a $10, $15 million project. And you didn't even meet with the property owner. So you're going to need that property owner throughout the process and even after the, the system is built.
0: Hey, commercial solar friends, you've probably heard that 2020 starts the solar plus decade. Well, that doesn't just mean solar plus storage. It means solar plus intelligent software like Demand X, extensible energies, demand charge reduction software that inexpensively reduces demand and time of use charges by 30 percent without batteries or extra permitting. By including DemandX software in your proposals, you'll increase customer ROI, shorten payback times, and help close more commercial solar and storage deals. Contact Extensible Energy at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast for a free demand charge analysis for your commercial solar project and start closing more sales in the Solar Plus decade. Hey, Warrior, I bet you're already aware of CPS America's dominance in CNI with over 30% market share. But did you realize that they also shipped 500 megawatts of utility scale 1500 volt inverters in 2019? Their unique design flexibility makes them the only company with the ability to eliminate DC combiners in the field. And their DC to medium voltage balance of system bundle allows for as much as 40% reduction in costs. But wait there's more. With string inverters increasingly used in utility applications, CPS is infusing smart tech innovations to drive down costs along the value chain from DC generation to AC delivery. If you'd like to find out what other cost stack reduction CPS can bring to your C&I and utility projects, head to mysuncast.com forward slash CPS. What
2: other stakeholders do you find that people overlook the most? You you touched on it by saying the town, help me understand what that means, but there's generally a kind of a suite of stakeholders that you have to think about as you're engaging in a municipality, thinking into zoning, into uh, site control, into interconnection, et cetera. Who are those stakeholders as you outline it?
1: Yeah, I mean, number one is, is obviously the property owner, the municipality, I mean, sometimes it's very, you gotta be very uh, strategic in how you approach a town. It's a human business, knowing the town, knowing the people. Um, you gotta follow the code, but building that level of of trust, going in there and explaining your project earlier than later, where it makes sense. I, I don't know. I mean, they're a stakeholder in the sense where they they hold your permits, obviously but it's the property owner, you know, and also working with looking uh, working with local uh, local people. I mean, having a good local council who knows the area and knows communities if you need that type of support. I really, the real estate is a local game. It's very difficult. And I've had a, a laundry list of failures I could bore you about going into markets where we didn't have the experience and we tried to do it. And it's very hard, not to say you can't do it, but one of the things we focus on at Above Grid is really developing relationships with local developers, local uh, feet on the street, so to speak, who know the marketplace and know the ins and outs. Because that, that type of intrinsic knowledge and relationships pay for it in space because they know the market. You know,
2: It seems to me like you have that, that sort of ace in the hole uh, that your model is really a real estate developer enablement model.
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. This is a, I I say in all our meetings we have at Above Grid, is we are, and I've said this in in conferences before, we are, this is a real estate business. I'm going to use your quote here without the uh, tenant occupancy risk, right? It is real estate 101. And, And when, if you look at real estate, you also have to have a long term play. And this is really where it comes down to building connections with people. I like to read. Uh, I read a lot of books. Um, one of my favorite. Uh, I might go off. I know you're going to talk about this later on. It's got John John DeJulius, who's a uh, a great author. He' uh, best-selling author on customer service, uh, relationship, with economy. He consults to Chick fil A. Chick-fil-A. Uh, Starbucks, Ritz-Carlton, and I'm reading a book right now called The Relationship Economy. I'm going to send him this too. got a nice plug, and he uh, he talks about how in this day and age, and that you know, with the new generation coming up and everything is digital, but all of his research and all of his experience is it's really human to human interaction, which is going to differentiate between greatness and average in the near future. And all the research and studies, even talking to CEOs is they're teaching now, actually having to teach how to build relationships with people. I see it in this business a lot where people don't even want to meet with you. I mean, this is a project-driven business. I mean, you have to meet with people. You have to understand and across the table, I mean, these are complex deals, but you have to build that trust. And if you're not building trust with the person sitting across from you, you're going to have a lot more difficult time, especially when problems arise. And there's going to be problems in every project. But when you have that level of trust and credibility and you do what you say you're going to do, your path to success is going to be
2: that much easier. I love that. I love that last part as well. And I'll give a hat tip to one of my early mentors and bosses, Tim Davies at DRI Companies in California, gave me one of my first development jobs and a core mission and value, rather core value of that company was do what you say you will do. As a roofing company that they were, that was really important. If somebody calls you and says, my roof's leaking, and you say, we'll be there in 15 minutes, and you get there in 25 minutes, you've potentially caused catastrophic damage. (laughs) The idea of doing what you say you'll do just um, doesn't necessarily permeate the culture in a lot of companies these days. You're right. And I call TCI
1: trust, credibility, and integrity. And um, it's really... You know the other thing too is with with project development, and uh, you ask what really what the skill set is is you got to move the you got to move the uh, the ball every day, even if it's an inch. And I see a lot of developers where every day you're getting an information. Right, the title report comes in, the uh, zoning analysis comes in, you know, wetlands analysis comes in every little day, and I see a lot of. Folks prioritize, you have to prioritize a little bit, obviously, but they're working only on like a what's due this week. And then they back shelf the, the title report. And then six months later, you need a, a not to get too, too granular, but you need a, a non-disturbance agreement that takes six months to get. Well, now you're behind the eight ball. Every day, you've got to push the project forward and you have to eliminate risk. And uh, one of my old bosses, he's the president of SBA, uh, I forget to say his name, Kurt Bagwell. He used to have this big sign in, in the office, every site, every day, or, or every text, every site, every email, every day. Meaning every day you're returning phone calls, returning emails, and you're looking at every single project, whether it's a you know, that one call to the engineering company, can I get the drawings a day early? That is the that is, you know, when you look at project development, it's it's such a competitive driven business. Where, you know, I've had projects where you you someone jumped the queue with one, one day, right? One day, every day that goes by that you don't do something is one less day later, one day later that your project is not being built. I'm glad you and said that.
2: Bar- I, want, I want to drill down to that. You can't get too granular on this podcast. So when you said jump the queue, many people may not know what that means. And it comes to actually something that you and I talked about offline that I want to bring in. You said site control and zoning were points sort of like one and two in getting a project on off the ground as it were on the ground um and and i chipped in in one of our previous conversations that i've seen sort of rights of way slash interconnection be kind of number three are you referring to interconnection when you mentioned the key yes
1: yes sorry yeah absolutely yes um, and then this is the this is probably the biggest unique uh factor in and probably of all other i don't know other any other development that's like this to you get your application in. To the utility because that reserves your spit your spot in the queue, what they call the queue uh, with the utility. So that means and there's only so much capacity on a, a particular line, a circuit, a substation. So if you have a 10 megawatt system that you're proposing, and there's a lot of things you need to do, you have to do an application, write a check, put together design plans, you submit it. Let's say it's the National Grid in New York. Once you submit that project into the queue you're sort of reserved in that space. So if, if company two comes in a week later, they're behind you. And that could be the difference between millions of dollars, because maybe right after your project goes in, you need a transformer upgrade, which could now all of a sudden make the project not pencil. So it is that rush to get something in the queue, but you also have to have enough information to be able to do that. And and some level of a landowner commitment, maybe not necessarily site control. So once you get that project in the queue, then, then there's a whole other set. It's like hurry up and wait. And there's other steps in the process that you have to do. But uh, getting that, the getting that uh, and I've had projects where, you know, sometimes it just happens. You, you can't make everything, right? And just, you know, stuff happens and you miss, you know, someone else jumps ahead of you. And now you got to pull back. You don't do the project. But we've had projects where there was just delays that shouldn't have happened. And you spent five or 10 grand. And all of a sudden you look at the queue and like, oh, darn it. You know, another company's in there. Now all of a sudden in that circuit there's just not enough room and we don't do the project.
2: You mentioned move the ball every day and it made me think. Well, how do I measure that if I'm trying to run a team? How do I measure that the ball's moving every day? Or are there templates that you and your team have developed that you offer as support to developers that you work with to help cultivate their deals? Or how, how do you instill that culture of moving the ball?
1: You know, I think you mentioned the first thing is is real culture, right? Um, one of the one of the quotes I love is by Peter Drucker. You know. Culture each strategy for breakfast. And it's really instilling that culture of, and I try to do this all the time, you know, wherever I work is you got to just, you just constantly got to be on top of things. And the second thing in terms of mechanisms or or templates, uh, I mean, we use a very simple, and this comes from the telecom world, really a simple Excel tracker where. You know, in our world, in telecom, we were so forecast driven, every milestone had a forecast. So you have to, you know, when you get site control, this day, zoning applied, this day, and and then you have all the different milestones in between. And you could kind of see if the ball, I mean, this is a little, this isn't as granular, but you could see sort of looking at the dates if things are happening. And then there's always, you know, we always have a space for comments. So if, if people are looking at their projects every day, and this is the biggest piece of advice, one of the biggest pieces of advice I get to anyone in development. If you have 20 projects, every day you should be looking at every single project. And you might only have to spend one minute on something, or there could be a, a project where you have to spend all day on something, but at least you're looking at everything every day. And you're the quarterback, right? You're seeing you're seeing that the plan here of all your projects and where they're going. And it's a follow-up business. If you're not following up with the stakeholders, with your consultants with the utilities, whoever it is. And some, you know, you're not gonna move a town very quickly, but talking to an engineering company and saying, hey, you know, you gotta do us, you know, you owe us a a set of zoning drawings to submit. Um, How are you doing on those? You know, are you gonna meet your deadline? Can I get them two days earlier, right? And it's really fire prevention versus fire drills, um, whichever we always seem to be putting out fires. But the more proactiveness you can do, the better your price is gonna go and the quicker. There is a. I saw a really good quote. Um, another good quote is that there's not a place on the P and L for missed opportunities, right? And 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 I think this is a John DeJulius quote. But there should be because there are companies miss so many opportunities, and those those equal to dollars. But there's not a lot of that post-mortem analysis that happens, right? Because it's hard to to, to quantitate, uh, quantify that. So it's really, you know, moving, you know, the ball forward and looking at every project every day, but it's instilling that culture.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I know that we could go way down the rabbit hole and be super technical on, on so many different levels about the things that you could, you could help dispel. And again, that's why I'm suggesting uh, for those of you who are listening this far into it, you should probably take a listen to the outro. We'll let you know if we decide to do a gathering, an AMA, some sort of a webinar with Joe, uh, Joe, one of the things that we're we're sharing in the show notes of this episode is this presentation you did at Solar Power International 2019 in Salt Lake called "The Foundation of Originating Quality Energy Storage Projects." Now, storage is obviously the hot topic right now; it's the the, the soup du jour. What, what sort of nuggets of wisdom from that presentation could you dispense, could you dispense here for us?
1: That was specifically for ABESA, which was the energy component of, of SBI. And um, a lot of it is stuff I already mentioned. It, it wasn't really a, a technical presentation. It was really about the steps of originating the projects, understanding state policy, uh, really all the steps. I, I don't know if there's anything in here, Nico, that is a revelation. Mm-hmm um what i did not speak about already so i try to take i try to uh, tailor the presentation on everything i just spoke about and doing storage and pv are the same i mean i think storage is easier because you're you only need a a smaller i'm talking about standalone storage you know smaller footprint but um i i don't pretend to understand the uh if you try to ask me to explain on how the lithium ion battery works and and uh, all the different- oh, no
2: yeah I'm, I'm, I'm referring back to uh, and actually I think you I mean you answered uh, what I was getting at uh, which is I'm always looking for how do I help someone who's trying to figure this out for themselves So we'll link to that presentation which Joe's graciously uh, yeah, th- yeah thank
1: you and, and, and one I, I, I want to do this more and more at conferences one because I, I, I like it I like attention and I uh, like speaking. And uh, But I really like to impart. I, I always say, you know, you go to, I've been to a lot of these conferences, and, and they're fantastic. I think the industry does a, SIA and all these, they do a fantastic job uh, in the uh, space to put on great conferences with great people. And they're really technical driven, right? They're always about the latest technology, the latest policies. And, and that's, like I said earlier, that's the year in the water, right? That's the stuff you need to do anything. But there's not a lot of... Um, focus on the development aspect of it, right? I mean, there might be a little session on the permitting by an attorney, and but there's really the, the roots of all this and in, in how do you get projects in this whole marketplace? There's not a lot of focus on that. There's not a lot of focus on customer service and how to build relationships. And I, I think it's just a uh, a lack of, a lacking of, 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 in an industry that not to have presentations like this, not to kind of toot my own horn here, but I believe it's, it's quintessential to what we do in business.
2: Well, I, like you and uh, Jim and, and Gage and many other friends in the industry who are working on these problems, b- agree that process is important. Energy uh, storage is going to be the great enabler of you know, the mass adoption we expect to see with solar. And I'm grateful to have met someone like you who, who has those processes in place, hope that we can find ways that we can share you know, those, those sort of templates, those guides with folks that might want to work with the above grid in some way. But I want to ask a question that, uh, kind of looks at your view of development, the world, et cetera. Tell me something that is true for you that you believe very few people agree with you on. Wow. (laughs) That's a question.
1: Um, I would, I would say, and this is real contrarian and, uh, let me, let me explain it is, uh, spend time on the little things in the insignificant things, right? Things that aren't the top priorities, right? All we hear throughout our day in our world is, you know, focus on the big priorities, you know, get rid of the little, you know, don't worry about the little stuff. And when I'm saying it, that's, that's so true, but it's always those little things, those little annoying things that, you know, you don't spend any time on because they're annoying or they're there, the little housekeeping things and organizational things that, And I believe that I like to focus on those things and get them out of the way, get them out of my life. Right. Even my organizational approach every day, you know, all these things. Well, don't check email to 10 o'clock in the morning. Why? Get, Get the emails out, get the little emails out of the way. The one word answers, the quick approvals. I see so many people focusing on, you know, oh, I didn't have time. You know, it's not important now to improve these invoices. You know, it's not important now to. Yeah, you have to prioritize your day. That's common sense. But Get the little things out of the way in your life because those are the things that end up to snowball and they turn out to be big things. So I would say a lot of people would disagree with me on that. I mean, you know, you have the old Stephen Covey thing where he gets the the fish tank and you put all the little little balls in and now the big balls like your family and everything else that they don't fit in the fish tank, right? I don't know if you've ever seen that thing. It's hard to articulate on, 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 a, on a podcast, but and I, okay, we get that, right? Family is important, you know, um, career is important, but it's all these little things in our lives that are just annoying that uh, people don't organize themselves to. And then they start to add up and add up and add up. And you end up really taking a lot of people off because you don't get, it astounds me. It astounds me the number of people that don't return phone calls, that don't return texts, that don't return emails. I believe you return them all. I mean, the guy selling you carpet on soliciting on the internet, maybe not that guy, but- all those things, man, when you get back to people, they appreciate it and you never know where that's going to lead.
2: I love that. That is really fundamental and sound advice. And it goes back to the thing that you've highlighted a number of times uh, that is keying in on relationships and customer service and showing up the way that you want others to show up for you. That seems to me like a key sort of important lesson in life that you learned early on and certainly in part to others Uh, What other key lessons or takeaways from important mentors in your life might you share with us?
1: I'd say a a, a mentor, uh, my old boss uh, at SBA, I was really young. It was really my first biggest management um, position. And this guy, Mike, um, I won't mention his last name, he's still there. And um, he was a really good mentor because one, he put a lot of trust in me. And I I believe in you have to trust and empower the people that work for you. And you have to really be able to do that, and then delegate and support them. I have a really good acronym that I I have for that. It's called TEDS: Trust, Educate, Delegate, and Support. And he was somebody that did that with me, and it just you know, and it allowed me to fail. I mean, you have to you have to be willing to fail, and you don't want to fail repeatedly. You don't want to make the same mistakes. But we're in a very aggressive business. You have to take risks. And if you're not feeling, you know, you're not trying again, I'm not saying you set out to fail. any successful person in this world has had failures. I mean, you mentioned Jim Spano. I know he spoke about that on your podcast and you have so much more tremendous respect for people that went out there and uh, Teddy Roosevelt his great speech. Uh, Darren greatly uh, the man in the ring. Um, it's just phenomenal. You know, you're going out there, you're doing it. It's not easy to be an entrepreneur. And to start a company out of nothing and to build it to something that's great, it's just, it's just so hard. And the failure rate to do that is just incredible. So, you know, I actually look at the people that have trusted me in my life, um, even people currently that trust me, and that to me is, is such a big, powerful thing. Uh, there's a lot of people in management out there. I mean, we lack leaders in this country, and there's people in management that should not be in management. Um, our leadership positions. I mean, you can't grow if you're not trusting people.
2: I completely agree. You mentioned a person that you and I both trust in a great manner, uh, Jim Spano. How'd you meet Jim?
1: You know, that is another a really good story. And I'm glad you brought that up. And, and I think this really goes to about the whole human relationship and making connection. I mean, Jim, as you know, uh, formed Radian REIT, which in and it itself is an amazing feat, the first mortgage REIT in the industry. Uh, and I was back in March and I was going to go to the New York best energy conference in Albany and I wasn't even going to go to it. I paid for it, but I had one of those days where, Oh, I don't have time. I'm busy. And, and I got a solicitation at 10 o'clock at night from his marketing company. Hey, these guys want to meet you. And I knew there wasn't really a value there because I'm, you know, I'm not at that level. So I sat down with Jim and four of his partners are all in suits. We're at a table and we knew after like five or 10 minutes, there was, there was no real synergies there. And uh, they gave me the time and we all shook hands. And I don't know, it's just something about Jim that, that I just, he was speaking about things. And I was just like, this guy's a lot more than just Radiant Reet. I saw him moan around and I was a little nervous actually, because I'm like, I want to go up to introduce myself formally and and I didn't know if he was going to give me the time of day and I did. And we ended up talking about 20 for 20 minutes. I don't know, we just bonded. He liked to cut in my jib, I guess. He's like, I got a lot of opportunities. I want to do more development come down to my office in a few weeks made an appointment met with him for like two or three hours and we had a handshake deal to form uh, we didn't even know the name yet but hey let's form above grid and um, that's the rest is history and uh, we brought in partner engineering and sciences which is uh, one of the best companies in the industry that did thousands of sites in solar and, and storage and uh, I mean just an unbelievable team of people um, and I'm just so proud and happy to be part of this group and of just consummate professionals. i brought in a couple of my partners that I've worked with before and uh, we just have an incredible team. I mean, we're just out of the gate right now and we have an amazing amount of opportunities in front of us. Um, It's just really excited to be working with these people. And it's just such a fortuitous thing that I met Jim. It's just the way things work out in life. So that's why I always, you know, I tell people, my own kids, take the meeting,
2: you know, meet the people. You never know where it's going to lead you. I love it. I was just about to ask if you had advice for fellow entrepreneurs, I think take the meeting might be one. <laughs> take the meeting. People, people spend their days where I, I and it's just, it, it
1: actually is a pet peeve of mine. If you ask me what my pet peeve is, people that do not get back to you. Now we're all busy. We're all, we're going to have, you do it right. People forget your day goes on, but you know, you know, the serial people that just never, you know, we all have friends that don't do right. Oh, I'm too busy. I'm starting to get back to you. Well, you just, you're missing opportunities. The, the amount of business that I've generated in my life where people like it's the meeting, you, you really are going to go to lunch with this guy. He's been bugging me. And then you you, you 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 leave the meeting and, and you're like, Oh my God, we have all this, all this synergy to the connections. And, and I mean, there's been businesses, billion dollar businesses that have been built by people just sitting next to each other in airplanes. I mean, talk to people, build human connections with your colleagues, with your fellow man, your fellow woman, because Those are what is going to generate your life experiences. And you know what? My other thing I believe in, Nico, and the way I try to live my life is help people without the expectation of anything in return. If you generally go out and try to help people, whether it's a message, whether it's just doing a favor, and you do that altruistically, you will get paid back in life 10 times over.
2: Well, you've mentioned a couple times, John DeJulius, uh, I think you said the name of that book was The Relationship Economy. As you know, I often ask, ask what books you've, uh, you've read that really influence your leadership style or that you, and maybe that you gift the most. I'll link to John and Relationship Economy or I'll find that book. Is there any other that you would add?
1: Yeah, I, I would, uh, I'm a big fan of John Maxwell. Um, he has a lot of really good leadership books to 21 irrefutable, uh, Rules or Laws of Leadership is a great book. Um, I'm just actually looking at my library here. Uh, another one is Lincoln on uh, Leadership of President Lincoln. Um, I mean, just one of the, probably one of the greatest leaders. Who's the, the uh, author of that one? I don't know offhand, um, okay. but it's Lincoln on Leadership. Uh, there's a lot of books like that that are really around Lincoln. And uh, if you really want to study a leader, a true leader, and probably one of the greatest leaders in the world's ever seen is, is Lincoln. He wasn't the smartest guy in the world. Um, he told, he led by telling stories and really being out there. Um, just fantastic. Another really good book is called the, uh, traveler's gift. I don't know who the author is that it's a real, it's sort of an obscure book. It's, it's not something you would see on like a, a real, uh, you know, top hundred book list, but, uh, it's about a guy who, you know,
2: basically travels through time meeting with certain people. It's pretty interesting book. Fantastic. Well, we're uh, about to run out of time here, Joe. Uh, how can people find you if they want to reach out and, and get in touch and get to know you better?
1: Uh, sure. Uh, my my email, uh, jtassone, T-A-S-S-O-N-E, at abovegridsolar.com is probably the best way to reach me.
2: Gotcha. And I guess abovegridsolar.com is the Above website. Abovegridsolar.com, yep. Perfect. Certainly link to that. Let's end, Joe. Let's end today. And uh, I'm sad that we have to end it. I feel like I could just keep this conversation going, but we always end with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market, Joe? That perhaps nobody else is tracking. What's in your crystal ball?
1: My crystal ball is in the next year, two years, three years. You are going to see a a huge difference. I think you see some market disruptions where you're going to start to see some deals that you normally don't see in the market where things that people would laugh at today and the money being available, I'm starting to see it already on some of the capital ways being expended. It's not really a, a black and white type of example, but I think you're going to start to see, my prediction is you're going to start to see some very unique types of deals from a capital influx standpoint that are unheard of today. And it's going to be the people that think out of the box that take advantage of this that are going to be the ones that are really going to be successful.
2: Joe Tassone is one of the co-founders of Above Grid and vice president of Ascend working on development of solar projects. We have been here soaking up the wisdom from your many years of experience. We thank you for that.
1: Nico, thank you very much. I I look forward to the end product and uh, I think you're doing a great thing and keep up the good work. Thank you.
0: All right, Solar Warrior, that is a wrap on today's episode, and I'm eager to hear how Joe's story resonates with you. If you've got questions just burning inside of you, you can, of course, ask them to Joe and I on social media, or shoot me an email. You might just get an introduction. And if you're eager to keep learning, well, then you, my fellow philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every discussion, along with the social media links, book recommendations, and more, on the blog at mysuncast.com. And while you're there, do be sure to subscribe to our weekly Suncast Tribe email so that you can stay in the know about the ways that we are curating community and content for our fellow solar warriors, like tomorrow's Ask Me Anything with Jeff Ressler of Clean Power Research. This is an invite-only event, so be sure that you're on that invite list by heading to mysuncast.com ASAP and entering your email. I hope you'll tune in next week as we say goodbye to February, short, gentle, dear February in this leap year of 2020, and say hello to March, which is Women's History Month. I have a special lineup coming for the entire month of March to honor the female leaders in the solar industry. And hey, before we jet out here, I just want to give a quick shout out and congratulations. Heartfelt thanks to my friend, Tor Valenza, a.k.a. Solar Fred. Tor, you've made such an impact on us here in the tribe and those of us in the solar industry. And I just want to wish you well as you embark on a new journey, my friend. Congratulations on your marriage. And we'll be excited to see where this next journey takes you. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.